you're listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan, here as always with David Scott. It's great to be back, Paul, and uh, welcome back. And uh, whilst I enjoyed having the uh, captain's armband last week, uh, I much prefer to go be sitting in the, uh, the deputy's chair here. So, yeah, welcome back. <laughs> oh, thanks. Uh, it was a great show. Um, you covered an awful lot of ground. I, I enjoyed listening in and uh, not having been involved. So um, you can uh, you can definitely have that captain's armband uh, uh, anytime, mate. Uh, look, uh, our guest on the show this week, uh, a regular on the show now, um, and one of our favourites, um, never short of a view on anything, particularly on interest rates. Uh, it's Stephen Kukoulis, uh, Managing Director at Market Economics and one uh, of Australia's most prominent economists. Stephen, welcome back to the show. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, look, really exciting. I, certainly with uh, with Stephen here, we're going to touch on the sport, um, uh, I think, later on in the show. Somebody actually said to me recently, um, you know what, uh, you guys sitting around talking about sport could be a whole show of its own. Um, uh, but you'll have to wait for that a little bit. Um, before that, I have a bit of an announcement. Um, some really exciting news uh, for us to share. Uh, here on the Business Insider show. Um, on the 27th of November, uh, this uh, coming uh, November, 27th of November, we will be doing a live show at the Ivy in Sydney, right? So tickets are $50 ahead, uh, and you can find them at humanitics.com.au and just search for Business Insider on there. Um, the panel, I'm really excited about this. The kook's going to be there. Um, but the panel also uh, includes uh, Laura Fitzsimmons uh, from JP Morgan, James Whelan from VFS Group, Pete Wargent from Alan Wargent, Eleanor Cray from Saxo Capital Markets, Joanne Masters from... Uh, ANZ, and Con Michalakis uh, from Statewide Super. It's going to be an absolute blockbuster evening um, full of insights and I'm sure um, a bit of talk about sport as well from time to time. There'll be campaigns and um, perhaps even an adult beverage or three. Um, so uh, look, uh, get on there, Humanitics, and, um, and search for Business Insider and uh, you'll find the show on there um, and uh, we look forward to seeing you, catching up and saying hello to everybody. Okay, we're getting in straight to um, the topic that is on everybody's lips at the moment. Well, I was in London last week and I was getting asked about it all the time. Australian house prices. Um, okay, uh, Cook, I noticed, you. I think, what was a very precise and uh, very apt tweet from you, uh, as many of your tweets are. Um, sometimes sometimes I question them, but, but you have a great hit rate with really calling some things exactly right. And you said that um, clearance rates, you know, another week of 50% preliminary clearance rate in, in Sydney, and you said that it was starting to look disorderly. Uh, I think that's a great um, uh, great summary of where we're at right now. Yeah, look, I think what we're seeing now is not just the odd blip that was linked to you know, football finals or a bit of wet weather or school holidays. What we're actually seeing now is those low numbers becoming more entrenched, that we're in this 40 to 50% auction clearance rate, which is usually associated with really weak house prices. When you overlay what's happening to the core logic numbers, which of course are, are daily, but even if you sort of look at the weekly or fortnightly numbers that are coming out of core logic, prices are still falling uh, at least at a rate of half a percent per month. In October, it actually seems to be a little bit bigger than that. So, and I know there's a lag on how they measure the numbers, but we're actually starting to see the price falls intensify a bit, the auction clearance rates are down. And when you look at the housing finance numbers, consider the fact that we haven't yet seen the full impact of the tightening in credit. Uh, 
it looks like a pretty crook uh, end to the year. Dave, do you want to take us through um, some of the details that we've seen in there recently? It uh, is starting to it, – the, the deterioration is small but noticeable. It is. Now, you already touched upon our auction clearance rates. So we've had two uh, two lots of national figures uh, back-to-back weeks where it's been below forty, uh, below 50% nationwide. Predominantly, that's reflecting of what's going on in Sydney, where it continues to sit around the lowest levels in several years. Indeed, earlier this, I think uh, in late September, uh, we saw the lowest level for clearance rates in Sydney since late uh, 2008. So a decade low. Uh, then you marry that with the other uh, data we're seeing from CoreLogic recently. You know we've seen uh, losses last week across the five mainland state capitals, zero point two percent. Zero point two percent was recorded in Sydney and Melbourne. Uh, we're talking about four point six percent decline in Melbourne so far this year. Four point four percent in Sydney. So it just does seem to uh, indicate that rather than uh, than moderating, the uh, the price declines at the moment are actually accelerating a touch. And of course, that's before what we get to peak spring season where we get the uh, the big influx of properties hit the market. You know, all things being equal this year, we're probably not going to see anywhere near as much volume coming on because market conditions are so weak. So there's people selling into a falling market and the big question is uh, who? when are there going to be people ready to try and catch the knife, right? Um, so I guess we'll, um, we'll see that. We'll watch that with great interest um, over the coming weeks. Uh, and um, the RBA uh, starting, David, to um, take a bit more notice of this. Yeah, they mentioned today in the uh, the minutes from their October meeting, so going back to the start of the month, that uh, I think prices had fallen uh, noticeably, uh, and that was a slight escalation of what the, they had previously said. So uh, then they tie back. There's been a few uh, few comments that have come out. Ian Harper, an RBA board member, was out this week talking about you know the risks uh, from a shock of an early increase in official interest rates for household consumption. Uh, you can probably go and outlay the same sort of risk if there was a, a more disorderly decline in house prices as well and what that could potentially do to uh, the household mindset. Would that go and see them pull back on spending and then go and batten down the hatches and, uh, and save more? Uh, of course, if that does happen, uh, it probably points to a, a more pronounced slowdown in the uh, broader Australian economy. So, Stephen, uh, where does this leave the RBA? Um, you've been saying that they should be assessing the possibility of a cut uh, uh, more seriously for some time now. It's been my worst call and my best call because they haven't cut rates yet, of course. They've been on hold for a couple of years now. But it's been the best call because, of course, the market had been pricing in hikes. So I'm very happy with the way that the uh, curve's been sort of able to, to embrace that. But look... Uh, look, they don't want to cut. Uh, I think we have to acknowledge that. They've got um, ongoing concerns about financial stability. They don't want to reflate the housing bubble. And while their language did change a little bit in today's uh, RBA minutes, they're still not yet concerned that after that stunning run-up of you know, 100% in six or seven years, in Sydney, Melbourne in particular, uh, a 5 6 7% fall is neither here nor there. Now... <clears throat> The question that is, I think, sort of um, emerged, and I think we're going to touch on this a little bit later, is now that the stock market's looking pretty fragile, adding another element of wealth, I don't want to use the word destruction, but I will, uh, but wealth erosion. Um, So it's not only housing that's lost value now, it's uh, your share portfolio. And there's been a million and one academic studies on the correlation between household wealth and consumer spending, and while there are little quirks and uh, bits and pieces. Broadly speaking, when household wealth is falling, consumer spending doesn't grow as fast. So now here we've got this scenario coming into year end, where uh, when people do actually have a little bit of a look of a mark to market on their superannuation portfolio, their house or their investment property, they're not going to be quite as happy as if prices were going up. 
So therefore, what do you do with your spending? And I think David touched on this. You tend to hunker down a bit. It's not a catastrophic scenario. It's not a recession forecast. But you do get the consumer side of the economy, which had been reasonably resilient up to the middle of this year, uh, perhaps taking a bit of a pause. They've got you know, very low levels of household saving rate. Debt levels aren't growing, so that's not going to be a source of spending. So when you do a little bit of a GDP forecast sustaining a 3% plus number is really hard once you get into the new year. Um, and it's not impossible to think that you're getting something back towards two and a half. That's when we get the RBA coming on board in the new year and thinking, well, you know, GDP at two and a half to two and three quarter percent, unemployment no longer falling. Uh, I think there's been some forecasts for third quarter CPI out in about two weeks, which is very low. There's a couple of little quirky things there. Um, inflation below target again. Will they change their mind? Look, I yeah. s I'd like them to, but uh, we'll have to wait and see. It'll, it'll, it'll be a big hurdle for them to clear. Fascinating question here. Uh, sorry, Dave, but there's a fascinating question about the psychological impact of a cut at this point. Uh, right. So um, the RBA has talked about um, consumers getting spooked, but um, certainly by a, by a hike. But isn't it possible that they would also get spooked by a cut? Who wants to take it? I believe they could. Uh, I think the RBA has even discussed the, uh, the, the when they're lifting rates, it's generally a sign that uh, that wages are increasing, economic growth is strong, uh, and, and and things on those lines. So generally good things. So uh, there is a chance that some people, particularly those who rely upon uh, fixed income savings, uh, may be a little bit um, perturbed about what's going on. Uh, whether that extends to people who are highly indebted and potentially in, uh, in mortgage stress is, is questionable though. But there's definitely grounds that it could go and make people go and rethink, well, hang on, if things are so great, why uh, emergency level interest rates getting even lower? And I'd like to sort of add there too, we've got to remember too that um – non-mining business investment. It's off the canvas. It has grown a bit, but it's hardly resounding. The expectations numbers that came out, gosh, uh, a couple of months ago with the um, with the CapEx numbers were pretty mediocre. So you've got to remember that the corporate sector's got a lot of debt too. And one of the hurdles for investment, as we know in our Economics 101 textbooks, is, is the rate of interest. So a lower interest rate might actually allow the corporate side to pick up some of the slack and give a little bit of a shot in the arm to uh, uh, to CapEx. The other thing too is we're seeing with the volatility, particularly in the Kiwi, where the RBNZ has been chatting about rates up and down all over the shop. Uh, we had a slightly higher CPI number today. But yeah, the Kiwi dollar is very responsive to interest rate expectations there. So if we were to see the RBA talk of a cut embrace a cut and deliver a cut, then I reckon the Aussie, I might, my hunch would be the Aussie dollar would take a bit of a hit. Mm -hmm. And so you get the export sector, which is already doing exceptionally well, mm -hmm. doing even better. So you, you, your composition of growth is shifting, not necessarily to protect the household sector, although rate cuts might help, is to actually help the corporate sector and the export sector through a more competitive exchange rate. The key thing to me is, is when you come back to the argument about what, uh, what potentially could go awry. And to me, the, the one thing that stands out domestically is the labour market. That is the linchpin behind all these particular calls looking for inflation and a pickup in uh, household consumption, uh, and a, a, a reduction in unemployment. If you were to go and remove that from the equation now, if we started to go and see a noticeable weakening in labour market conditions, then I think it would be time to be concerned. Yeah, no, I can butt in there because I know Alan Oster from the NAB does some really terrific stuff, uh, I think it's for their internal purposes, but also externally, about the uh, sensitivity of their mortgage book to to events, shock events, on interest rates. Yeah, they're pretty relaxed about a 200-point 
uh, hike in mortgage interest rates. They say most consumers would embrace it. It'd be okay. Their big fear, the thing that blows up his models, is if we get a two percentage point increase in the unemployment rate. So somewhere back into the seven, say seven and a half percent, that is the killer for the housing market. So we touched on, uh, you know, some of the impact of this on people's uh, retirement plans, etc. Right. So you got. Um, I think I noticed that the CBA was trading at, I, I, could, I had to look twice, uh, it was trading at around $66, $67 uh, when I looked. Um, uh, Westpac uh, trading at, uh, I think it's lowest in, in more than four years. Uh, and also there's the associated uh, dividend income that, um, you know, uh, if you had kind of set and forget uh, your, on your portfolio from 10 years ago and hadn't really thought too much about it, um, there might be a fairly significant adjustment in the outlook there for your um, uh, for your portfolio. Now, one of the other things that's been feeding into this has been into the decline in the bank share prices. Yes, there's the outlook for the property market um, and the impact of the Royal Commission and everything else, but there is a new wave of global market volatility. Uh, and David, when you did the show last week, uh, I think you recorded on Thursday and Thursday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, saw big uh, declines, particularly in equity markets markets. Um, we are in, uh, we talked for a while, um, for, for months and months about this, you know, that we're likely to see more volatility. Mm. Um, but uh, equity markets globally did get uh, beaten up. And there's a lot of talk about what catalyzed it <laughs> um, and, and where it goes from here. What's your take on it at the moment? Put simply, I think it was a whole bunch of uh, herd mentality all the, all outlaid at exactly the same moment. Everyone thought the same thing and it was enough where enough people were thinking the same thing. Let's get out of here. And it was all those stocks that had absolutely screeched higher, uh, no, not only this year, but no, over the past decade. Uh, all of a sudden, there was obviously you know, a bit of chat around about uh, Chinese uh, trade uh, concerns related with the, uh, the US tariffs that had been implemented. Uh, there was also a talk about you know, US bond yields had gone and hit seven-year highs. Now, I think out of all the catalysts, if there was one that I think a lot of people centered and narrowed down to, it was that lift in yields. But to me, that alone, the catalyst wasn't enough. And it's part of that broader story we've been discussing ad nauseum on times uh, about the global withdrawal of liquidity from central banks. We already know the Fed's tapering their balance sheet. We know the ECB's, uh, or the, the uh, Fed is already uh, reducing their balance sheet. The ECB is tapering their balance sheet. The BOJ is not buying anywhere near as many uh, government bonds as what they used to do. And so my personal opinion is that as this process goes on, and it looks like it will continue to go on for quite some time yet, the catalyst for moves that we've seen not only last week but in early February this year is all about this withdrawal of, uh, of liquidity and it's going to make things where something that's going to happen out of nowhere and people are going to be sitting there and thinking to themselves, what just happened? And there's not going to be an actual catalyst. It's just going to be that enough people are thinking the same thing. It's time to get out. And there's this whole extra factor as well too, with, uh, you know, machine selling. Um, I think there was one particularly big spike in selling towards the end of trade, uh, I think last Thursday on the S&P. Mm -hmm. um, you know, just a big rush of computer says, get out um, and uh, and just sells into that falling market and just pushes the index um, uh, pushes the index down further. Mm. So we saw that again. We're recording on, on Tuesday afternoon. We saw that again last night in the US, but on a much smaller scale. You know, stocks have been wavering back and forth between break even the entire session, then into the close. 
all the heavy volumes, sell, 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 and it just went and just shoot off a cliff. And of course, it was led once again by Nazi. Uh, Stephen, what do you think? What do you make of this? Yeah, look, I think uh, David summarised a lot of the really important things that are going to be driving this. But I'm also starting to think of a few other little issues that are creeping there. One is the uh, Trump sugar hit to the economy from the tax cuts. That was huge, a trillion and a half dollars. And while there's still a little bit to flow through, the bulk of it's already been injected into the US economy. There's not going to be another trillion and a half injected into the economy. So it's the fading of that sugar hit. So yeah, we saw spectacular GDP growth of 4% plus, unemployment down at 3.7%. This is in the US. A trillion and a half dollars does a lot for your economy. You're act- and, and it caused the, you know, the S&P to sort of spike and Dow Jones to be 26,500. You know, it, it did find a home. The money did find a home. If you look at where fiscal policy is in the US now, there's, there's in fact, a very large budget deficit and a very uh, sharp run-up in, in government debt. Now, it's sustainable. They're the US. They can print their own money. They're fine. However, it's just that fiscal policy, which was a big plus to an already decent economy, you know, the economy was doing fine, you know, maybe not booming, but it was doing fine before the, uh, the Trump tax cuts. It got that incredible um, sugar hit. And now the sugar hit's fading. And I think that that uh, assessment that's there and the discussion about the Fed, how high will they go, will they pause, will they keep going, that sort of uh, approach is feeding into those other things that David touched on. So it's really the case that will, you know, we saw the IMF you know, shave back their forecast for global growth. Not bad, but it's just a minus sign rather than the plus sign. You throw all that into the mix and you think, well, equities at these levels, are they really sustainable? Mm, probably not. So, well, this is the thing that for so long people have been talking about how there have been stretched valuations. And we've been doing this show, I think we've done now more than 80 episodes, would you believe it? Um, and uh, we've been talking about stretched valuations in US equities, I think, since we started the show. Uh, and we're probably up about 20% from there. So, um, so or, or more, right? Um, so it's dizzying, um, the, the, those valuations, particularly for the S&P, uh, Australia, not so much. Um, uh, but uh, so there's been that. Uh, there has been, you know, the, the rampaging US dollars, the Fed has start, started ever so slight, slightly to tighten. And then you've had this fiscal napalm from, um, from the Trump administa- administration, uh, you know, delivered this year. Um, so you've got the US dollar strengthening, you've got, had some wobbles in emerging markets, you know, um, uh, then you've had this problem with Italy, concern about, you know, what the, um, the stability of the Italian banking system. Um, then you've got uh, this question of the, you know, the yield curve uh, tightening. Um, and it was a great at this, uh, that uh, JP Morgan Asset Management Conference I was at, um, Last week, yeah, had this great, like their head of fixed income uh, has, um, for a guy who manages about half a trillion dollars uh, in fixed income, he's got a, a delightfully simple way of looking at some things. Uh, I guess it's probably, you know, he just, you know, you ask him, so people look at all sorts of ways of slicing and dicing the yield curve. What do you look at? And he's like, two stands. It's that, it's that simple, right? The, the classic benchmark, the difference between the two-year uh, uh, US Treasury and the 10-year. And he has a very simple rule of thumb, which is that 25 months 
after you get to 25 basis point spread in the twos and tens, and it's contracting, then you get a recession. So people go 18 months from inversion, but he says, actually, this is the way I, I look at it, two years after you hit 25 basis points, where it hovered uh, very, ever so slightly, but then blew out again uh, over the last six months. And that just happens to go inside with the next uh, US presidential election, oh, that, that, yeah. that period of time. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Uh, and the, and Trump is, has been, you know, bashing the Fed, saying, you know, that they're going crazy. <laughs> um, the Fed's going crazy with its, you know, 25 basis points every, you know, 12 weeks. Um, and, a, and a 2% the Fed funds rate. Yeah. 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 Um, so, look, all very interesting. Look, one other thing that I thought was really interesting that I thought worth sharing with you uh, from that uh, thing last week in terms of market risk. Um, and I'll write about this on, on BI this week, but it was from a guy called Anton Pill. Uh, who uh, manages um, alternatives for JP Morgan asset management. So he's got a, uh, his uh, corner is uh, about 100 billion US dollars. Um, so it's alternative, um, you know, um, uh, liquid alternatives, um, uh, hedge funds, uh, that kind of thing. Now, he said, and he talked a lot about uh, private credit, how this is a, a, an opportunity for uh, for investors, um, but also that it's a risk. Uh, I've got some notes here from it. You know, he talked about how that market in the last decade has exploded in size. It's now well over a trillion dollars. Um, so what is private credit? Well, um, it's banks or non-banks, uh, financial institutions that aren't banks, that are lending, uh, and they have an agreement about um, the credit, right? But there's a lot of what they're called, what is called uh, covenant light or non-covenant loaning, uh, lending uh, going on in that market. Now, and that is a very, very large proportion of this um, private credit market. Now, a covenant is the agreement where under a loan, uh, so say, um, uh, you're the lender, Stephen, and uh, I will say to you, look, I'm not going to sell the furniture um, or the factory or, you know, the lamps and um, uh, and the the telephones, etc. Before I go and speak to you, you know, you'll have a um, you'll have a claim on on the assets if there is a problem. Now, there's a lot of this covenant light lending uh, going on. Uh, and he says about 80% about of the um, this shadow banking issuance uh, is covenant light or no or non covenant. Um, and if the entire size of that market is about if the private market is about a trillion dollars, that's about $800 billion that's in this, um, this covenant light mark, this covenant light position, right? So his I have a quote here from him, which was, if you want to worry about something, in the next two or three years, this is it. And he added, by the way, you can't see it because it's private, right? So um, so I thought that was a very interesting take and certainly something that's going to be worth watching. Um, and these private alternatives have become quite attractive to a lot of investors, uh, perhaps, you know, maybe the big aggregate super funds, um, retirement funds around the world, looking for alternatives to find returns in, uh, uh, you know, when returns are, have been coming becoming harder to come by in the last two or three years. Um, so uh, certainly an interesting uh, uh, corner of the of the market to watch in, in the next two or three years. Um, is there anything else that you worry about uh, in particular, Stephen, at the global level? 
Well, that's that's an important one. Our own future fund has a lot of its asset allocation to alternative assets. They they pride themselves on not being the plain vanilla, buying equities, bonds, and not much else. So yeah, it's interesting how I think the low yield environment that's been with us for many many years and still is, to be frank, uh, saw investors look for alternatives that were interesting that had a bit bit more bang for their buck. But as Everybody knows when you're getting a bit more bang for your buck, there's a bit more risk. That's that's how you get your return. So uh, if they don't blow up, everything will be fine. <laughs> but of course, uh, uh, yeah, that's a really interesting thing. Look, gl- globally, um, it, it is the policy tightening scenarios that you, you know we've had. Um, you know, the Fed's been the dominant one, and of course, for good reason. Their economy's been on fire, as we just discussed. But the Bank of Canada's hiked a little. The BOE's hiked a little. Um, and ECB is sort of thinking about less aggressive stimulatory policy, BOJ the same. They haven't tightened as such yet. So there's this concern that if they tighten much more, how do we – and I remember at the time in the aftermath of the uh, emergency easings, the QE and all these things sort of seven, eight, nine years ago as the GFC was sort of impacting – the question back then was how do they how do the central banks ever unwind this position? How do we ever get back to normal interest rates, normal balance sheets, and these sort of things? And I think it's t- it took longer than I certainly expected it to be. But here we are. We're sort of in the early stages of it. The US is leaving, but the others are sort of behind somewhat. So do we get this situation? And this is sort of the interesting, maybe scary scenario, that in two or three years' time we still have uh, you know, ECB interest rates out on near zero, BOG, BOJ at zero, you know, BO, BOE, Bank of Canada, one, one and a quarter percent long bond yields in the twos and ones rather than fours and fives that, we, that I got used to. Um, do we have this whole situation? And does it matter in a way? That's the question. You know, are we just used to, or will we get even further used to central banks tweaking points, you know, 50 or 100 points over a cycle? And then having to cut again, yeah. you know, as we're discussing with the RBA, cutting the possibility. I know that people like good old Shane Oliver and a sort of and uh, Sally Alder flagging the possibility that the next move could be down. Yeah, you know, here we are talking about a rate cut from one and a half. So are we in this situation where it's not to say that central banks have lost their potency, but the policy settings are going to be around a zero to a two percent short-term cash rate that they mm. target rather than the good old days of fours, fives and sixes. And so you get this scenario where the growth growth moves in a narrower narrower band, uh, which is good because you get, sh- like if the recession, like so the growth doesn't go as high and you don't get the explosive job creation, et cetera. Um, but on the other side of that, if you like the, the good side of the downside, uh, is that the recessions may not be as deep and that they, they're, they, um, they're able to uh, quickly um, to, come back to in. Come and to just, yeah. and 25 points now is a lot more potent than 25 points 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. That um, a, a, a small move can have, as we're seeing, in the US uh, is having a big effect, even in, in in the UK and Canada, where they have hiked uh, you know once or twice in in those economies. It's had an impact, and they've paused. They've hiked, yeah, to one and zero point seven five percent in those two countries respectively, and they've paused. Mm. They're too scared to do more. Yeah, they're, they're, they're on hold. Yeah, it's a really interesting question, isn't it, Dave? Like the length of the cycle, so because we're in this enormously long expansion of. Um, 
uh, well, certainly the Australian economy. Uh, people still can't believe it. It's uh, it's always uh, interesting talking to people in, uh, in <laughs> economics when you go overseas. They're like twenty seven years, and you're like, I look, I know. Um, <laughs> twenty eight now. <laughs> yeah, yeah twenty eight. We've got a lot of iron ore and coal today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, um, so there's there's that, but. Um, like you look at uh, uh, where the US is, um, and uh, again in London last week, everybody's using two words: uh, late cycle, right? So, um, uh, which was kind of really, really interesting to me. It was just every fifteen minutes I heard the word late cycle, um, and they were talking about how the in that environment they need to be just a bit more selective, um, uh, a bit more careful, make sure you reduce your exposure to too many risky things, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, fairly obvious stuff uh, in some ways. Um, but Dave, it's an interesting question, isn't it? The, like the length of this uh, recovery and the prospect that like for the US, I mean, it looks pretty good for, um, you know, there's no sign of an imminent downturn, shall we say, in the next 18 months. There's not yet, but of course, you know, Stephen discussed the other uh, fiscal stimulus we've got through. We just received word that the other uh, U.S. Uh, federal budget deficit was the largest since 2012. You know, in, in fiscal year 2018, it's expected to get larger. We're talking about trillion-dollar deficits. Um, it looked really good, but then, of course, you have to go and look at the flip side of that, which is the, de the government debt loading and what that potentially will go and do. Uh, the U.S. is very lucky to be the reserve. Uh, currency for the world because if it wasn't, I suspect that uh, there'd be more than a few concerns about the US dollar and uh, US government finances. That's right, but it is the dollar is the dollar, and um, and that's where they are. Correct, yeah. exactly right. No, the, the the biggest fear that I have about you know, the the next little period is that whether what we've only seen over the past decade has been a recovery in financial markets, not an actual recovery in the economy. Mm. I'm not sure that the uh, the actual economy has fully recovered. To, uh, to where it was in a, in a real self-sustaining sense. Mm. I think a lot of it's been juiced by huge gains in, uh, in asset markets. Now, if you go and take that away, we'll find out very quickly whether it was an, a, a real economic recovery or whether it was just simply a financial-led economic recovery. Well, absolutely, and it has been one of the defining themes of our age, right, that uh, like the growth looks good, um, but people don't necessarily feel good about... Yeah, and know. the wages situation, I think David's spot on, that we've had, yeah, the, the top-line GDP numbers are not bad mm. around the world. Correct. Um, they're pretty good. And even some of the unemployment rates are, are, are good. Uh, but the wages side is where it hasn't happened, and uh, that, that's where this discussion on wages is, is again, a huge theme that uh, many s smart people are talking about, and I don't think any of them have come up with an answer yet because it's because there are many moving parts, and it's not because the economy is weak, which is usually the suspect behind uh, very weak wages growth, and it comes back to sort of the artificial intelligence, technological change, machines doing what humans used to do, and if firms want to uh, expand their business rather than putting on more staff, they buy another machine and people on low wages just can't put their hand up. Or, for, uh, or they take the wage. function of some department and, and get that done somewhere else where there's cheaper labour. Indeed, yeah. indeed, yeah. exactly. So we've got this situation that, and that's why I think people are feeling, oh gosh, this isn't great, unless you've got a bucket full of equities or you've had a bucket full of US equities and you're feeling pretty rich or up until recently Sydney and Melbourne houses. Um, you know, at, at the moment, you're just, you're just not participating in this, that people are, uh, are not having that um, nice three and a half, four percent wage claim or wage increase that allowed them to sort of keep their head above water with real wages growth spending continuing. I think that's that's a global phenomenon. Which leads us very nicely into what we're going to talk about next, which is politics and the federal budget. 
You're listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. Paul Colgan here, as always, with David Scott, and our guest this week is Stephen Kukoulos. So, uh, Stephen, uh, federal budget, uh, you've worked on some from inside the government, um, uh, and I know you certainly keep a very close eye on the state of the government's books. Um, and look, um, the um, finance department published... Um, the first update in the financial year on how the budget is tracking just a couple of weeks ago. They did, yes. And uh, five billion, the, the run rate is $5 billion ahead um, of, and so I think about $3 billion of that is, uh, is corporate taxes, but half and half corporate taxes and, regi- and less than... A little bit lower yeah. LAs, yeah. yeah. And, and that's only for two months. That's for the first two months of the financial year, so July and August. It's, it's a $5.5 billion outperformance compared with the uh, May budget. I suspect Josh Frydenberg's doing cartwheels in his office, but as long as no one can see him, but uh, and uh, particularly with the political situation where it is, it appears that if the economy just maintains a reasonable growth momentum, and between now and the my EFO, the mid-year update, and then the pre-election fiscal outlook, if it just you know doesn't deteriorate markedly in the next three to six months, those budget numbers are going to look pretty good. You know, even today, the iron ore price is still above 70 US dollars a tonne, and that's with the Aussie dollar at 71 cents. So not only have we had this ratcheting up in, unexpected ratcheting up in uh, commodity prices, coal's very strong too, we've had the currency being a bit weaker than was assumed at budget time. So you put that, just those two numbers, nothing else, just put those two numbers into the, into the budget um, framework, and you are getting five to seven, depending on the assumptions you use, billion dollars per annum just from coal and iron ore uh, and the currency being weaker. So those budget... Projected deficits only around 10. 10, 10, and so it doesn't take much in terms of a slight uptick in employment momentum uh, to sort of see these budget numbers improve. So I reckon when we get the mid-year update, probably in December, I think the Treasurer said after the national accounts in uh, in the first week of December, we're going to get them, you will see budget numbers that are that have been the best in in quite a while in terms of the sort of momentum, and so they're going to be crowing about that, rightly so. We've got um, a real sharp improvement in the budget position, but perhaps for the political cycle, maybe the economic cycle too, uh, they may want to use some of that money to try to buy a bit of favour back with the electorate through income tax cuts and these sorts of other initiatives that they that I bet will be on the in the on their agenda. Yeah, you know, it occurred to me that uh, this, you know, could potentially be coming at almost the the perfect time, right when households are like almost entirely out of steam. Um, And, uh, you know, we've got like, what's the latest like uh, fuel prices now at uh, multi-year highs, you know, 170 um, a, a leader kind of prices like just punishing um, for household budgets effectively attacks uh, and that have the, the fuel prices look like um, look the oil price has been very very volatile the last couple of years and it could you know instantly uh, or could very rapidly um, fall back and you get some more value back in there but um, I think base case we're looking at high high fuel prices for um, uh, for some time to come so you know on top of all the utilities pressure you add in uh, the fuel, and it's just, you know, yet another uh, kick in the guts for households. Now, at the end of the um, uh, this financial year, um, there's that little $500 uh, rebate that uh, households will be expecting. But for them to be able to say, hey, look, uh, right, we're, we're finally ready to go, um, 
uh, with some more significant, meaningful tax cuts that uh, compensate for this low wages growth um, and also give people back some of the money that they've been hosing. Uh, because that's one of the big uh, um, uh, sources of this ups- revenue uh, upside surprise. Sure, there's been the company taxes and you know high, strong commodity prices, etc. Um, but there's also been the stronger than expected unemployment growth, which uh, pulls in your all your um, your income tax, so um, your your personal income tax. And the other thing that's in the budget, which I think is really curious, uh, I did a little test um, a couple of months ago, paying with tap or paying with cash. Oh, yeah. Because I think one of the things that I, I haven't been able to quantify, it, there's a sort of an honest thesis here for someone to do, but the fact that almost everybody now, even for small purchases, is using the tap rather than cash means that the little, um, I won't name any of the businesses that I went to, who were sort of uh, starry-eyed when I offered to pay in cash were fantastic. They didn't ring it up on the till. No one ever saw it, including the tax office. So the fact that you tap, there is a record of it. They cannot hide the GST that they've got to on-send to the uh, tax office or their income. So I'm wondering just whether this technological change and this massive run-up in the use of cards and the massive rundown in the use of cash is actually meaning that the compliance, nothing to do with a strong economy necessarily, although everything that we've said is, of course, valid, but is it, is it this technological change that's sort of meaning business, oh, I can't sort of... Put uh, trousers of that fifty buck note in my pocket because because yeah. it's all been tap and go, and there's a bank record of my transactions. Yeah, well, look, um, <laughs> I, I I do have in my pocket, and I have to I'll say this on the show so that um, uh, so that the, the CEO, if he's listening, uh, you can be assured um, that uh, it's it's all going to be above board. But I got a, a one taxi uh, when I was in London, and I just happened to reach into my pocket and I said, "Here, look, I can pay you with cash, right?" And I handed him over twenty pounds. Um, and uh, he says, um, and he says, do you want a receipt? I said, um, oh yeah, please, could, um, could I get a receipt? Thanks very much. Uh, and he says, um, oh, I'll just give you a blank one if you like. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> so he gives me, I have it in my wallet. It's this, you know, London taxi official receipt. Um, and it's just completely blank. And he hands it over to it. And, and, I 150 have, pounds, I can't believe yes, it was yeah, such a yeah, big Yeah, 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 120.00, <laughs> oh, oh, um, you know, and, uh, you know, currently with the exchange rate uh, as it is, you know, we had title, but, I, you know, uh, uh, obviously, um, you know, wouldn't possibly dream of doing anything like that. But this is clearly something that is, it, that goes on, the way he said it to me, it was like so clear that this was, you know, convention uh, of London taxis. That uh, you know, they talk about you know, use a London taxi over an Uber for all of these separate different benefits, including and a blank receipt. Including yeah. a blank receipt. Um, so, uh, Dave, um, impact of a stronger budget position generally on the outlook. Um, I know, particularly with the small, um, with deficits as small as they are, uh, even though we talk about you know tens of billions of dollars in deficits, they're pretty small in terms well, of one point seven trillion dollar economy. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So not much doesn't uh, doesn't perturb you too much. Um, no, I hope they do deploy a bit of uh, relief for households because I think they're out of all the sectors uh, out there at the moment, they're the ones who need it the most. And the RBA is giving them plenty of forewarning by saying it's the biggest source of uncertainty is the outlook for household spending. Let's go and alleviate some of that uncertainty by helping them out. Yeah. Okay. Um, right now, uh, Stephen, um, long tar- long lifelong Collingwood fan. Indeed. I'm very sorry. Again, they lost. Again. Oh, it, it was a tragic afternoon. It started so well. I was happy for a moment. I was happy for a long time. And then just in that last two or three minutes, you know, the turnovers, 
And I must confess, horrible umpiring. There's no doubt about those last couple of decisions, the sort of shepherding off the ball. But to lose with that kick from an impossible angle, everything went wrong. And the poor old Collingwood football team, despite wonderful effort, wonderful uh, a wonderful season, just got pipped at the post. It's one of my, uh, I think one of the most remarkable things in any sport anywhere is Collingwood's ability to lose grand finals. I, I don't know. It's something like... I think they've lost does, about 20, 28, I think, yeah. since you know, the last 120-odd years or 22 or something. An incredible number. Yeah, yeah. And uh, just heartbreaking. Uh, like yes. I, I, a few years ago, I thought it was... Um, uh, you know, when I first started paying attention to this, maybe 10 years ago, I thought it was kind of, you know, well, isn't that an interesting trend? Ha, ha, ha. But now I look at it and I genuinely, I have a lot of sympathy. Um, I Thank think you. It's got, I think it's got to be tough, particularly, you know, the length of the season, the challenges that the team goes through. Beating Richmond the week before, which, right, was, which yeah. was an incredible win. That was that was good. But uh, maybe, mm. they, maybe they played their, um, uh, gave all, all their effort in that game. But mm. Anyway. I certainly think the uh, West Coast got a very easy ride through their prelim against the Demons, so perhaps that sort of played into uh, to what the result was. Well, they they sort of ran over the top of Collingwood in the last three quarters, but Collingwood were very brave uh, to go and get there. Uh, but uh, that that kick at the end just to nail the win. Now, whether it was a, a blocking uh, blocking <laughs> yes. uh, free or not, to go and nail that under that pressure, I think you know probably deserved the other. Uh, it was win. a great goal. Yeah. yeah. Um, the, the other thing you're big into is uh, the horses, the Gigi's. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. So what did you make of all of this? Not, so all of this opera house yeah. craziness uh, exploded while I was away. Yeah, the, the Everest and the um, advertising on the opera house sales. I'll, I'll start by saying I don't like any of the lights on the opera house. I don't like Vivid. Oh, gosh, don't shoot me. I, 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 yeah, it, it, the opera house is sort of – is a. Wonderful building the way it is, and um, so I'm not a fan. It's very garish that sort of those bright coloured lights that are on there. Anyway, so that said, I don't like it. But I and I think, as I understand it, that the uh, racing authorities and the opera house and the state premier had reached a decision about putting the number of the horse, the barrier that it drew, and its colours. Fair enough. That for about five or six minutes. Whatever that doesn't thrill me terribly much, but when you know, Alan Jones got involved, I think that interview with the uh, head of the Opera House just escalated the outrage and horror, mm. and uh, and caused people to be really upset by it. And uh, fair enough too. Yeah. But the race was great; it was very exciting. Yes. <laughs> Record crowd. They they locked the gates after race three, and as I understand it, I was just sort of reading some of the. Um, the numbers from uh, my racing friends turnover on the day was up about nine percent on uh, on the Randwick Racecourse and down in Melbourne where they had the uh, they had the uh, guineas. The turnover was up twenty percent. People love a punt. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. We do love a punt in Australia. You know, one of my f most um, fascinating facts that I am aware of, and it's a little bit embarrassing. Um, the um, the, so we all know Australia has a very high level of spend per capita on gambling, right? So now, look, not all of it is is the um, flutters at the races. It's a big issue with the pokies. Uh, and then uh, when you go on from that, the, the biggest filer of patents in Australia is aristocrat leisure. 
Um, so they they filed more they filed more patents uh, last year um, than anybody else, and I think that's uh, kind of a telling statistic. I mean, you know, you think it could be like drone technology or agricultural <laughs> yes, technology yes. Or, or medical research yes. or something yeah. or, uh, but no, poker machines yeah. and games. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those little games on your phone. Yeah, mm. that's right. Um, <laughs> look, um, let's start on a uh, – let's finish on – try and finish on a positive. The Wallabies, um, they finally did it. They finally put something together. <laughs> Come on, you boys in gold. Dave, were you, were you happy? I mean, the first half wasn't great, but... Um, yeah. I, I missed the entire game. I, I, I read the, uh, the result, then I went back and watched it. Uh, and I'm glad Checker gave him an absolute rev up because having watched the, uh, the first half, they were atrocious again. And they will have no hope in next year's World Cup if they play like that. And have some pride in the jersey. I'm sure that they do, but no, just so down and mopey and just not playing confident rugby. Go back to you know, enjoying the game and love it, and the results will show. And hopefully, that will know. And this is the start of a, a mini revival for the uh, for the Wallabies. Have you been following it at all? I have been following it, and yes, I was actually watching it live, and I just couldn't believe the first half. What was it, thirty-one nine at halftime? Something extraordinary like that. And uh, you thought, my goodness, this is this is unbelievable. They're going to get a cricket score against us. But yes, the, the, the rev up, and maybe just sort of realizing that they'd played so badly that they came out, they threw the ball around. And they won. It was remarkable. So, gosh, half, one half of a football after a really disappointing season, after a long slog and um, some really disappointing results. I'm not quite sure whether we're at a turning point. Uh, there's a lot of discussion about you know player players and the like, whether they need to be turned over. But we live in hope. The spring the spring tour comes up. We play the uh, the All Blacks, I think, uh, later this month, and then we uh, then we head off to uh, to. The Isles, so let's uh, let's have a red hot crack and throw the ball around like we used to do in, uh, in Australian rugby. Go to the backs, that's what our strength was, and uh, stop trying to be so technical and just love the game because that's the one thing I've, I've noticed over the, the last uh, last five years, pretty much since the, uh, the Waratahs won the, uh, the Super Rugby final, that just the crowds and just the, the general chit-chat, people are mocking the way that uh, the teams are playing, and it's really sad as a, as a passionate supporter to go and see that. Yeah, um, I, I think you know. I I thought it was great to see them put something together and give themselves a, a reason to believe. Because um, as much as uh, I like to see the Wallabies get some manners put on them, um, uh, being first and foremost a, 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 an Irish rugby fan, I do like to see that you know, like it's nice when some of the cockiness of the Wallabies gets uh, gets wiped off a little bit. I don't I don't think it's good for the game overall when um, when the Wallabies are. are are not playing interesting rugby, and when and when it's not worth turning up to watch them, right? So, um, and there's nothing better than when they're on fire and you get some great individual performances. And I think um, Dale Hale Petty has been fantastic at, at fullback, like massive boots, like literally the biggest boots to fill. I think <laughs> trying to step in for Izzy there at the um, at fullback, um, and Izzy's uh, been. Um, uh, Looking great on the on on the wing, um, so look. I think that's. Um, I think it's good. I think. I think hopefully, you know, at least it's something to to look forward to. And like, if they can pick up where they left off in that second half, um, they're definitely a force to be reckoned with. But I think to your point, David, they've got to play. You know, you can't go out if you go out against. I think possibly a, a slightly better team and let them put thirty points on you. Uh, in the first half's game over, um, you, you know it's uh, you haven't got much of a chance. Um, okay, look, this has been a great show. Um, our guest this week has been Stephen Kukulis, managing director at Market Economics. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. That was terrific fun. 
Um, now, don't forget, November 27th at the Ivy, 6.30 p.m. Um, we're going to do Devils and Details live and unplugged um, guests, including the kook, Laura Fitzsimmons from J.P. Morgan, uh, James Whelan from VFS Group, Pete Wardent, Eleanor Cray from Saxo, Joanne Masters from ANZ, Con Michalakis from Statewide, uh, and there may be some others that I'm trying to confirm at the moment, but come along. Uh, it'll be great to see you. We all get to hang out uh, and have a chat. Um, so 6.30 to about uh, 10 o'clock on, on November the 27th. Put it in the diary and buy some tickets. Um, all right. You've been listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. You can find us on the web at businessinsider.com.au. The show is produced by Rick Salter. We are on Twitter at B-I-A-U-S. And you can find us all individually on Twitter as well. It's David Scott, uh, the kook, uh, and myself, Paul Colgan. Uh, we'll catch you next time.